31 for our sermon, which can be found on the inside of the bulletin. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. And you know, one of the, the great things about going through a book is you look at all the scripture. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And from the bad and the ugly, I mean the things that challenge us. You know, it would be very easy to pick, kind of cherry pick from the scripture, all the things that we want to hear. But if we do that, it would be very easy for us to kind of shape a God that we want to know, rather than the God who is. And so, as we go through this passage, uh, this book of Hebrews, and we've come to a passage that is extremely challenging, that should challenge us, that should maybe even disturb us a little bit. But as I've looked at this passage, I'm so excited to preach it because what I've discovered is that this passage tells about the God that we've actually been looking for. So let me read this passage and then we'll dig in. This is Hebrews 10, 26-31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The word of the Lord. God. You know, if there's one thing I can't stand in life for myself personally, it's rejection. Okay, I'm going to lay bare my soul with you. I can put up with a lot of things, but the one thing that I have trouble with is rejection. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like when somebody rejects you, it's, it goes right to the core of your being. At least that's the way I felt as a seventh grader when there was this girl I liked and we were at a party and I approached her to ask her to dance with my heart in my hand. And she said, no. And I was crushed by the rejection. In fact, it sticks with me even now, shaping my entire existence. I can't stand rejection. But I'm probably not the only one, right? Who here hasn't gone to apply for a job with, that you were excited about and, you know, there are a lot of candidates, but you thought, I'm perfect for this. And lo and behold, you get that phone call. Sorry, we hired somebody else. How about going out for a sports team, soccer team or basketball team? You really want to be a part of it and you love sports and you go and you make the first cut and then you make the second cut, but then there's the name and the list and you're not on it. And there's that rejection once again. See, here's the truth. The greater the rejection, the greater the emotion, the greater the anger, if you will, but the greater the acceptance, the greater the joy. I can remember that uh, time to go to college, and I really had my heart set on going to the University of Virginia. Really, really wanted to go there. That was the place for me. And so you put your heart in your hand and you try to sum up your entire high school experience on a piece of paper and you send it in and you wait. You wait for that envelope to come back. And if it's a nice fat envelope, that's a really good sign. But if it's a thin envelope, you're in for disappointment. 
And I can remember that envelope coming back and my parents bringing it to me and I was at work and lo and behold, it was a fat envelope. The greater the rejection, the greater the anger, but the greater the acceptance, the greater the joy. Now it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that God feels the exact same way. We, after all, are made in the image of God, aren't we? See, we tend to think of God as some sort of nameless, faceless creature in the sky, some celestial candy machine that gives us goods if we push the right buttons and doesn't if we don't. But we see that the God of the Bible is intensely personal because God has a personality. He rejoices in righteousness, but he's saddened by sin. He loves his people and he hates his enemies. He finds happiness in creating peace and unity, and he's enraged by hypocrisy. God is intensely personal, and God has revealed himself to us through his word. And this passage gives us into a window into the personality of God, and it disquiets us. Because in this passage, we see a God of fury, a God of anger, a God of vengeance. It should disturb us. If this one, this God who holds the waters of the oceans in his hand, the one who created the universe and the stars, the one who speaks and it says his voice can break sticks, uh, the, break the trees like matchsticks, is ticked off at someone. It should disturb us. Frankly, it offends our white Western sensibilities. We want a very palatable God, don't we? A very benign God, almost a grandfather time God that we can put in our pocket and pull out whenever we need him. But that's not the God of this passage. See, the God of this passage, this passage teaches us two important truths about God. The first is we can only approach God in two ways. One in utter worship or two, in utter rejection. And additionally, God will only approach us in two ways, either in utter delight and joy, or in utter vengeance and wrath. Now the question we have to ask is, is this fair? We're gonna look at three points as I unpack this very controversial passage. Number one, what does it mean to reject God? What is this rejection that we're talking about anyways? We have to understand that. Number two, is God justified in his response? Does he have a leg to stand on in this response of fury and wrath? And then finally, number three, the way that God responds actually shows us that this is exactly the God that we've been looking for all along. Now that's a tall order, so let's begin. Number one, what does it mean to reject God? Look at verse uh, 25. Actually, I'll read by before it, uh, 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. This is what we talked about last week. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Verse 25. For if we go on sinning deliberately, even after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the enemies. I remember as a 19-year-old first-year student at the University of Virginia, a new Christian, really struggling with this passage. 
Because I was concerned about sin in my life, and as I was reading this passage, I was wondering, is this passage talking about me? Because what I was told was that Jesus can forgive any sin. It doesn't matter how far away that you are, Jesus can reach you where you're at, and I'm reading this passage. So who is God speaking of in this passage? We see, number one, that they have received knowledge of the truth. After they have received knowledge of the truth. Now keep in mind, this book is being, this uh, letter is being written to a group of Hebraic Christians back all the way in the times of the Scripture. They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have TV. There was no way for them to have received knowledge of the truth unless they were in the church. So they were the people that had already been in the church, sitting under the feet of the pastor. They had been baptized. They were members. They were part of the body. They had received the knowledge of the truth. And what was that truth? The truth of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The truth of forgiveness through His blood shed on the cross. The truth of the opportunity to become sons and daughters of God through Christ. They already knew all of these things. And yet for some reason that truth wasn't going from here to here. It wasn't producing any fruit in their life. Rather, we see that they were deliberately continuing to sin. See that word, deliberately? See, different than just continuing to sin. In fact, we just heard about the Apostle Paul being troubled by his sin. 1 John 1.10 says this, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. See, sin is a part of the Christian struggle. But no, this is something different. This is someone that deliberately keeps on sinning. In fact, the word in Greek could be translated willingly keeps on sinning. Or approvingly or voluntarily keeps on sinning. And notice that word, keep on or go on. We're seeing something that's a pattern here. A pattern of willing, voluntary, continued, persisting in sin, regardless of the knowledge that they already have received. The truth is not penetrated into their hearts and is reflected out in the way they live. See, this teaches us an important truth, that the way we live is a reflection of what we love. Our behavior is a reflection of our belief. These folks are showing from the way that they're living what's going on in their hearts. And we see that there is a consequence. That no sacrifice for sins remains. See, it doesn't matter that they were baptized. It doesn't matter that they came to church on Sunday. It doesn't matter that they took communion. It didn't matter that they were members. It didn't even matter if they were a deacon or an elder or a pastor for that matter. No sacrifice for sins is left. There was nowhere for them to go. Rather, instead of sacrifice, it was replaced by a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire. This word fearful, fear, phobos, from where we get the word phobia. That back in their hearts, they knew a fearful expectation of judgment because they knew that their faith was a sham. See, they weren't struggling with sin. They weren't struggling at all. They didn't have this life of faith of struggle because they didn't care. They were those who had rejected grace. I remember one time I was driving the road up with my family. 
where my wife's family lived, and we were going there for I don't know whatever reason. And we go down 460, which is, or across 460, which kind of bisects Virginia instead of taking uh, 64 all the way across, kind of back road. And, you know, you go along, and then all of a sudden you run into these little towns, crew, Virginia. And they're speed traps, I'm telling you. They're making all of their cash on speed traps. Because you're driving along 55, and you'll crest the hill, and it'll be speed limit 35, just like that. You won't even see it, and there's a guy right there. Okay? Notice how I foist my problems off onto someone else. Well, I'm driving along. Sure enough, I'm not paying attention. I'm driving too fast, and here come the lights. And he pulls me over, and I'm like, oh, God. Here we are, my kids watching me get a ticket right here because I'm driving too fast. So he comes over, you know, and he's asking me questions, blah, blah, blah. Well, where are you, you know, going? And somehow, I can't even remember how it happened. I wasn't doing it. I was ashamed of it. It came out the fact. He asked, well, where are you going? Well, I got to get back. Well, I got to get, well, I got to go preach a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what he did? His eyes lit up. You're a pastor? I love my church. And he starts talking about the mission trip that he took to Mexico. And he hangs out with his pastor and he loves his church. He's so excited. And you know what he does with his little ticket? We'll just forget about this. And he just throws it out the door. You know, membership happens privileges, I guess. I hit the right guy. And off we go, and I'm smiling, and kingdom of God, and Lord's taking care of me, and this is great. Off I go until 30 minutes later. <laughs> Two towns down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Within an hour, I get stopped again. And on the first stop, I got grace. But on the second stop, I got law. He didn't care about anything. I mean, I'm not going to say anything here, you know. I got my ticket. Fair and square because I had broken the law. See, I didn't pay attention to the first time, did I? Honestly, I showed contempt for the grace of the first guy. Now, the analogy isn't perfect because honestly, a lot of my problems dealt with carelessness. This passage is dealing with willingness. But the passage makes sense when we think about showing contempt for the grace of God. What he has done in Jesus Christ, all of the things that he has done has not moved into the person's heart. And so this passage must force us to examine the question ourselves, what do I believe? For how I live determines what I love. See, it's easy to be religious. It's easy to come and sort of put on the facade, isn't it? But what about my life? Is there a struggle against sin? Or rather, is my life characterized willingly, approvingly, persistent in its sin? Is my Christianity, my love for Christ at the core of my heart, or really is it a sham? Kind of like a face that I put on when I walk out the door, when I go on Sunday, and then I take it off with my car keys for the rest of the week. Be warned, my friends. God will not be mocked. God refuses to be rejected. Because if our life, if our faith is just a facade, there's no sacrifice for sins. See, the Bible says in that condition, you're not a friend of God. Rather, you're an enemy of God. 
Dave, would you go ahead and close that door for me? Thank you. See, the Bible calls us either to worship or to reject. But it's one or the other. Because our God is an all or nothing God. The greater the rejection, the greater the anger. But the greater the acceptance, the greater the joy. Now that leads me to my second point. Is this fair? Is God being fair? Is this an appropriate response? I mean, why is God so upset? Here's the answer. Because God the Father loves God the Son. See, I, there's, I consider myself a pretty mild-mannered guy, you know? Kind of the Clark Kent first guy. But there's one thing that causes my blood to boil. And that's when somebody messes with my kids. Okay, just recently, I found out, you know, Maria's coming back on the bus. Someone was messing with Maria on the bus. And instantly, my blood temperature from here to here, just like that. Because somebody's messing with my kids. And nobody messes with my kids. Okay, if you think I'm bad, you should see my wife. Who, when mama bears cubs, let me tell you what, the claws, out like that. I mean, it's even like, if we're watching our kids, if I'm watching Will on the lacrosse field, and someone checks Will in the bad way, I'm out on the field. I'm going to take out that kid. He's done. Okay? I don't care if he's 12. I'm going to take him out. Because I don't like it when somebody messes with my kids. I mean, you're in the same way, aren't you? You know, where does that come from? Why does it surprise us that God would feel the exact same way? See, all of our love that we have, the love for a spouse, the love for a child, the love for a friend, it comes from the paradigm of the Trinity. The love that God has within Himself. The love of God the Father for God the Son. The love of God the Son for God the Spirit. The love of God the Spirit for God the Father. Around and around. That is the paradigm of love. So why should we so be so surprised when God feels the exact same way? We see the analogy of how much this enrages and incenses God by this, this illustration of the Old Testament. Uh, verse 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will it be Deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. This verse here uh, is a reference to Numbers 15, 22 through 31, which was read earlier. Remember, if anyone sins unintentionally, you shall offer forgiveness, you know, a sacrifice, and they shall be forgiven for their mistake. But it said, if anyone, sets a, uh, if anyone sins with a high hand, Okay, that's what he was talking about. Sins with a high hand means to set aside the law, which means in, the, uh, in English to annul it, to abrogate it, to reject it. If anyone rejected the law of Moses, spurned it and set it aside, they died without mercy. How much more will punishment be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? This word spurn in the Greek means to trample. Or to trample upon. Remember, it's kind of like to take your foot and kind of do one of these. Now still in the Middle East, you see a big thing about uh, shoes as the ultimate insult. Remember when Saddam Hussein was toppled? And what were the people doing? They were taking their shoes 
and they were trampling him to show how much they hated him. Anyone has trampled the Son of God. If anyone has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. This word profane means to treat it as defiled. Remember Jesus? This is the blood of the covenant. The blood I'm going to shed for you in this new covenant of grace as I give my blood for you that you may be made pure. If anyone takes the blood and he defiles it, he treats it as common, as nothing, by which he was sanctified, by which could purchase him, he treats it as defiled. These people who should know better, by the way, this comment, this passage is to people within the church. Notice Jesus was, all, who's Jesus always mad at? He's always mad at the religious people. Okay, not the sinners and the prostitutes. Did he call everyone to repent? Yes, but he was mad at the people that should have known better. And these people should have known better. What is the result? Outraging the spirit of grace. The spirit who applies the work of Christ onto the heart of the believers. This gift, outraging the spirit of grace. Ultimately saying, I don't want what you have done for me. How does God respond? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, if you have insulted God's son, how would you expect him to react? The same way that we would. So what is it that God really wants anyways? God wants us to feel about the Son like God feels about the Son. The intense love that God the Father has for the Son, God wants us to feel for Him. The intimacy and the love and the care, that is God's desire for our hearts. And the position that God has put the Son in, exalting Him to the hand of the Father, He has made Him both King and Christ. He wants us to recognize his position, and he wants it from the core of your being. Oh, an acquaintance of mine who was a pastor tells a story about a person in his church who was a very wealthy person, somewhat of a skeptic, and he would come to church. And this person was a business owner. He owned a bunch of tugboats, these big, big vessels that would move around. He was very, very wealthy. And this pastor had a heart for this guy, so they would meet together and they would talk about the gospel. But this uh, tugboat owner really wasn't convinced, but he felt like there was something to this. So the pastor was amazed when one day the tugboat owner called him up and he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give one of my tugboats to the church. We're going to sell it and you can have it. Right about $750,000. And you know what this pastor said? God doesn't want your tugboat. What do you mean God doesn't want my tugboat? $750,000. God doesn't want your tugboat. Well, what does God want? God wants your heart. Because when God gets your heart, He gets all your tugboats. <laughs> God wants our heart to love the Son of God like God loves the Son of God. And that can only be worship, my friends. Anything less than that. Is just rejection. So my question for you is, are you giving God your heart or are you giving Him your tugboat? See, you can pull off looking obedient. 
You can go to church. You can do all the right things. You can live a good life and make sacrifices and keep your nose clean while all the time your affections are on something else. Your job or your spouse or that car that you really want or those clothes or that body or you name it. But you see, to put your affections on anything other than the Son of God is to trample Him. <clears throat> but God says, don't trample my Son. Lift Him up and make Him King. Don't defile the blood of the covenant. Rather, consider it your very life. Don't outrage the Spirit. Rather, embrace Him. Don't pay lip service to Jesus. Worship Him. This brings me to my final point. That the way that God responds shows us that God, this God, is the one that we've been looking for all along. Now, how can that be? I mean, a God of vengeance who inflicts punishment and judges, how can this be the God that we're looking for? Well, let me ask you the question. What if God didn't care? What if God didn't take it personally how his son was treated? See, if God didn't take it personally, that meant that God is not personal. That he's impersonal. He's not a loving God. He's a robot. He's some sort of automaton out there. Because the truth of the matter is, we think that the opposite of love is hatred. The opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. If there's not a personal, loving God who cares about His Son, then all we are are these random accidents whose lives rise and fall with the whim of God who is in charge of something that we don't even understand. But rather, we see that God is personal. But God's reaction shows us something even more powerful than that. See, it makes sense that God would respond in this way about His Son. But what doesn't make sense is why would He put His Son in harm's way in the first place? See, the things that are most important to us, that we love, we protect with all of our mind, all of our heart, don't we? If we have money, where do we put it? In a bank where it's safe. We have jewelry, we put it in a safe. My children, my wife, what do I do? I endeavor to protect them and wall them off as much as possible so that nothing could ever come to them that would harm them. But we see something entirely different with God. That God takes His very Son and deliberately puts Him in harm's way. Deliberately risks his son. Indeed, deliberately even sends his son to die. If that's how God feels about his son, then how does God feel about you? All the love that God has for his son, he's willing to lay on a cross so that he might ransom you to himself. The most valuable gift of God. The truth of the matter is God sent Jesus to die, to bring us into his family. And to do that, he himself had to trample the Son of God. Isaiah 53, 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
and through the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. See, the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled at the cross was by the will of God himself. Remember watching an interview of Mel Gibson during the Passion of Christ, and it was uh, ABC News, and they were asking the question, who killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? The answer was it was neither. It was God the Father himself who sacrificed his son for you and me. See, this is the God that we're looking for, my friends. The God who pursues us, who loves us to such a great extent. Where can we find such a love? Where can we find someone who would do something like this? Where can we find someone who might be so enraged when somebody comes against us that he would act toward us the same way that he acts toward the Son? See, that's the beauty. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, God will approach us only in one of two ways. In utter delight and joy, or in utter vengeance and wrath. What's the sticking point? Those that profess that Jesus Christ is Lord are the heirs and benefits of this covenant of grace. So my question for you is where do you stand in regard to Jesus? Do you worship him with your heart? Do you worship him as king? Not that you don't struggle with sin, we do. But has it penetrated from here to here? If he has, you can rest in this, that the very same love that God the Father has for God the Son, God has for you. That he who watches over you will neither slumber nor sleep. That all the inheritance and the riches of the kingdom of God will be yours one day. The greater the rejection, the greater the anger. The greater the acceptance, the greater the joy. Let us pray.